0: What's up, everybody? This is Emmett. I am here with your weekly installment of Exhaust, the podcast about why nothing feels possible. And I am here with Canada, Mike. What's up, Mike?
1: Not too much, man. What's up with you?
0: I forget. Today, we're going to talk about, as you can tell from the title of this episode, The Art of Forgetting, an ancient art attached to the art of remembering. And one of the reasons why... So first, I should explain how we stumbled across this. I was on Twitter, as I often am, and Contbot was posting uh, a bunch of clips from historical articles, uncited. So I went to go look for some of what they were, and I found a couple either directly from him or through just searching through things related on The Art of Forgetting. And this is something that was... Part of the theological edifice of the scholastic medieval world that by the time the 16th century rolls around comes under serious assault as the West opens up through Magellan, as the Protestant Reformation begins to gain ahead gain of steam, and other things start to change. What I thought was interesting about this is that it shows, in part, how the modern psychology is established, and one of the techniques that was undermined in order to achieve that. I'm increasingly interested these days in how people used to think and how they used to build, and I thought that this posed a very fascinating window into that that I had never heard of before.
1: Yeah, I'd certainly never heard of this, except in the context of memorization, right? Like, so, I mean, you, you come across this discussions around how to go about memorizing. In particular, like if you need to correct a mistake or something like that, mm-hmm. then, you know, both of these papers discuss the sense in which the most effective way to suppress a memory is to recite it within the network of semiotic contextual associations that mm-hmm. connect it to other elements of memory. Yes, and so I think if you're if you're into you know like any type of tradition that values memorization, you'll run into some type of discussion of this. But certainly, I mean, these days, very few people memorize anything, and yeah, the art of forgetting. I don't. I've never. I've never heard it discussed so explicitly as in these papers. So that's certainly interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the figures from a paper we didn't like so much, but at least has some helpful evidence of the technique of forgetting, it is an examination of this cherub figure, which has shows up in various religious texts that has things written on the wings. You can tell that the wings are like interlaced. And so the implication is that in your mind's eye, you can picture the wings moving, and that will create different patterns between concepts that will allow you to create sermons or engage in religious contemplation of the virtues of like prudence, charity, these types of things, or God's holiness, or whatever. And that this was an entire mode of thinking and being that existed in the scholastic era. I did not know about that. I've heard of things like that, as you say, Mike, sort of, you know, I think there were like 10 years ago, a lot of people were writing books on memory, like shit about your mind palace and stuff like that. That was in vogue. So I had heard of some of this stuff, but the idea that it would be something that you establish in your head as a way to move around in the world and fulfill your social duties is not something I had ever anticipated.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting to see like I think I think the point of the Cherub paper is that these figures are a tool with which you introduce kind of dynamism into memorized material, right? Like so her point is that there is this kind of you know very low type of rote memorization where you can only enter a memorized text at the start and Mm -hmm. then reel it off linearly. You know, you can't enter the text at different points. And I, I mean, you know, I don't agree that that's generally characteristic of yeah. rote memorization, but you know, they're definitely like when you're beginning to do rote memorization, you certainly can feel the sense in which that's true. And the so the cherub is this interesting mechanism by which you might have, you know, some memorized material, particularly from scripture, you know, and these are, these are tools both for internal contemplation and meditation, as well as like the composition of, you know, if not on the fly, then, you know, pretty contemporaneous th- religious th- material. Things th- th-
0: help a priest get through the Lenten season.
1: Right. And he's and got to, to come deliver a whole themes. bunch of sermons. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. And they're all like, high stakes sermons, right? <laughs> the Lenten season is very, yeah. very important in the Catholic world. I mean, the Christian right. world generally, but it's to be able to guide your flock through that who will be made of up of a diverse group of lay people is important.
1: And you need to be able to hit conventional topics while maintaining people's interest. You need to be able to connect disparate areas of scripture that are not linearly in sequence that pertain mm-hmm. to the same topic and so on. Right. So it's very obvious how something like this could be an interesting, you know, I think both of the papers use the word nemotechnics, like memory technology and, and many, many people, particularly like if you're, if you're an academic or something like and you have to deliver like extemporaneous talks about some technical material, you probably do something like this already where you're like dynamically able to move between sub- subjects based right, on exactly. like the relations and so on.
0: And this is highly formalized in a fascinating way with this image of the cherub and how it can be manipulated in the mind's eye to generate different ideas or relationships between this and to create basically create a filtering mechanism for already attained bodies of knowledge. And what I thought was interesting about this is that if we think about this from like a, you know, I love the pneumotechnics thing where it's like this is, you know, a technique for, or artist oblivionales, you know, the art of a, oblivion that helps you forget. They're obviously in relationship with each other. But if we think about this as a social technology, then we start to understand what the printed word, the bibliography, the catalog, the index, all of these things that are externalized and created by the advent of the printing press do that starts to shift the way people think about codifying knowledge and accessing knowledge. This is one way to create that sort of system within the self when there is limited access to varieties of information.
1: Yeah. And it might, it might be worth noting that. So the cherub paper is focusing really on an image, which has kind of a topological dimension. Mm -hmm. Like it's the wings are numbered. There's six wings in this seraph or Mm -hmm. or cherub. And then each of the wings has a series, an ordered series of topical suggestions, basically. Right. Yeah. and the the second paper kind of insists on this semiotic landscape where it's like there's a symbol that stands for a particular idea or topic or what have you and i think you know like the the printed word has both of those dimensions right like i probably most people are familiar with remembering where in a book some passage occurs like oh it's at the top of the page like three quarters of the way through right Mm -hmm. so there's that topological dimension as well as this like deliberately constructed symbolic dimension that many people use to, to remember things.
0: Yeah, exactly. I forget, there's a poet who memorized by rote the entirety of the Iliad, but many poets have done this, but a contemporary American poet. I remember being taught about it in college and the professor at the time talked about how they did it by drawing a series of pictures that corresponded either metaphorically or directly to the action of of the poem, and then using those as a topological guide through the actual content of the text, and that this was how they achieved it. Right. So, something like that. Now, what happens, right, when often... One thing talked about in this other paper, The Art of Forgetting the Middle Ages, Cornelius Agrippa's Rhetoric of Extinction by uh, Tomas Zahora, is the idea that this would also correspond to things you would see in your daily life. So the boundedness of a monk or priest's life to their environs was also something that they might use to create this topography of ways to remember. So what happens when that they move or their topography radically changes. As early modernity is about to unfold in front of them, it creates epistemic crises. The French historian Paul Hazard has a book on this called The Crisis of the European Mind, which takes a look at the impact of early modernity on Western modes of thinking. and. Unsurprisingly, the methods of forgetting the mnemotechnics are one of the things directly under assault, because that is how people embody and internalize the scholastic worldview.
1: Right, right. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that the, the emphasis is on forgetting rather than destabilization, maybe. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I almost feel like that that part is a little bit misleading. Cause in both cases what we're talking about is the reassignment of value. Like in the cherub mm-hmm. case we're we're finding new links or like dynamic links that we hadn't explored before maybe, or just ones that seem seem novel to the audience. And then in in the second case we're talking about Cornelius Agrippa, who has this big project of going through all of the classical disciplines and then reassigning their meaning and value to like the opposite of what was classically uh, understood by that discipline's name.
0: It's a great subversion that he's engaged with. So one of the things that we might say is that an important distinction made in both papers is the difference between how memory was thought of differently then, allegedly, Right. I would say that we still think of it in some ways this way now, but the emphasis is different because the way of life is different. We have this idea that it's sort of like you're missing something from the card catalog in your head. It was supposed to be filed there. It's not there. You don't remember where you put your keys. You can't remember exactly what happened that day. It's hazy. There's some sort of like user error right, or system error that has occurred with this. The way that they're talking about forgetting is... Purposeful obscuring or de emphasizing of information or intentional self confounding so that one thing is replaced with another, right? Perhaps less right. coherent. That's what Agrippa is very interested in, right? A grammarian is actually like a prostitute or whatever. He has some very great subversions of all of the archetypes of those who pass on the scholastic worldview to you and creating opposite relationships to undo that because Agrippa thinks that the scholastic world is in decadence and that all of the people who hold it up have betrayed whatever values it has, and that from the moment of Duns Scotus and Aquinas in creating the scholastic world, it has fallen into crank shit basically. People yeah, I, jerking off with tautologies, not really being corrupt, not really speaking about reality, that it is shot through with falseness. But because he's of that world, the way in which he assaults it is by creating this art of oblivion to use its own techniques against it, to semiotically replace all of these things with their opposite as a way to unlearn this add-on to the way things are.
1: Yeah, I I thought that was like a really funny kind of, like he's he's going through systematically demolishing all you know, disciplines, knowledge, but then he carves out like, ex- except for Duns Scotus and Aquinas, Aquinas
0: <laughs> yeah, is except for those guys. Like... <laughs> he was like, I mean, they're not totally cool, but
1: yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, it's interesting. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I mean, the thing that really struck me about this was like casting this as a systematic project of destabilizing the audience's associations and respect for these disciplines and their structure, right? And I I think, you know, maybe one of the the characteristics of modern memory practice is that it's very rarely put into like a larger frame where it's like, okay, well, this is is like the fount of knowledge, like maybe like theology or something like this, Right. right? For Agrippa, he's saying it's scripture, right? There's nothing else. And then there are these kinds of bodies of knowledge that are structured in a particular way, they have kind of a topology and they have different relations and some of them are more useful and others are less useful. And like you could potentially like exhaust some of them maybe, you know, and now it's just like, well, you you don't really have any account of like knowledge in general when you're going about trying to memorize or forget anything. Right. So it's, you're limited to these like really purely, I mean, in some ways, like what Agrippa is complaining about is what you're limited to, right? Like Agrippa is, mm-hmm. is complaining that he's still forced to like do astrology and like conjuring because rich people keep coming to him and paying him right. to do it. Right. And he's like, I, I can't afford to say no, right. so I have to do this. I have to do right. this and I
0: don't want to and I wish I could forget it. But yeah. also the important thing is that the structures of forgetting aren't themselves innocent for lack of a better word. In other words, they of course carry with them certain assumptions, a certain framework that becomes adopted when you start to use them as a tool that rely on certain things that he is now done with or thinks other people should be done with, and that is the scholastic, the Aquinian Aristotelian view of the world. That that needs to be over, there needs to be a return with the V to scripture to a more pure relationship. I mean there's something like deeply Protestant about what he's saying, obviously. And also I think delightfully naive in a yeah. way that a lot of early modern stuff feels from our sort of cynical postmodern worldview. But <laughs> you don't get to question assumptions within that because it is about internalizing those assumptions. And that is, I think, part of what he thinks is diseased about these techniques and this mode of thinking. This is, I think, the modern impulse we see here isn't just one of rebellion, which has always existed. It is one of replacement, fragmentation, and subversion, which feels like it anticipates a lot of modern critiques that come after Agrippa. Agrippa, by the way, is not just some random guy. He has a big effect that we've now forgotten on people like Goethe, on Mary Shelley. Like He looms large for a decent period of time onto people who then end up creating a lot of the modern cultural and philosophical frameworks we live in today.
1: Yeah. I I actually... You know, I haven't thought about Agrippa in years and years and years. But when I was reading this, I was like, "Oh yeah, like Agrippa is a Wahhabi." Like I, I just realized that he has this impulse <laughs> where he's yes. like, "the the old tradition is decadent; it can't keep up with like basically modern capitalism," and so we have to discard the entire thing, get back to scripture, get back to Quran and Sunnah, and, you know, basically. Shortly thereafter, it's going to turn out that rich people run everything and you have, you know, Petro-Islam or like modern European capitalism in Agrippa's (laughs) case or whatever, right? It's like, oh, oh, dang, that didn't quite work out. You can't actually escape hermeneutics and interpretation. Oh, well, you know, but- um, There's no
0: purity to return to, right? That's the mistake in a way.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's interesting to see Agrippa directly attack hermeneutics and interpretation, right? And to say that like, like none of this can arise- Rise above mere hermeneutic and, and interpretation, and we have to, you know, get back to this originary purity of of scripture. And it's just, yeah, like, sorry, you can't do it, right? Like, you're a hermeneutic being, and you're going to be accepting someone's interpretation of scripture if you're attached to scripture, right? So mm-hmm. I, you know, and there, it, it's just like there's no independence in, in the sense of like okay I can like completely cut myself off from my culture my language all this stuff right like it just can't be done you know so but you can you can certainly empathize with the impulse right cuz like yeah clearly you know and i mean we're in we're in a similar situation in modernity where it's like yeah you have people entering these closed systems of you know not not even like i'd say we don't even have the kinds of like pseudological closed systems that can do things like Agrippa is criticizing with like, you know, these systems of argumentation, where you can produce like minutely detailed arguments for or against any topic with uh, within some bounds, right, the bounds of the system, like we don't even have that anymore. We just have systems which are like endlessly permuted in order to serve elite interest, or, you know, class interest or whatever, right. So in some ways, we have an even worse, worse situation now, which I think it makes it easy at least to sympathize with Agrippa.
0: Yeah, absolutely. What I was going to say is the mistake that people often make, and I've made this mistake for a really long time. In fact, after we do the Future's Past book for the Patreon, John and I have decided we are going to do Michael Allen Gillespie's The Theological Origins of Modernity together to take a look at some of this, is that there is also a great deal of returning. And then McIntyre talks about this, but just the creation of the tradition itself and the departure of it and how these things work. Like People often believe too much in the propaganda of the Enlightenment and that it was a turning away from superstition and all of these things, when in fact, if Isaac Newton's anyone to go by, it was fraught with such things, with replacements for the theological, with pagan superstition and stuff like that. And that's not to discredit the astounding heights of the scientific revolution right i mean obviously i make my money advocating for nuclear clearly i admire much of what happens there what i mean to say is these things are never so simple as to say this new thing happened Right? There's often a pulling from the past, a return to the purity of scripture, or in some cases in the Renaissance, a return to the pagan humanism of Attic Greece and stuff like that, that goes into creating the modern world we live in, and that we're not over that tendency. It's easy to be sympathetic to Agrippa because we just seem to be locked in a continuous cycle of this type of overturning.
1: Yeah, and it, it, I think it's very difficult to find your way, even if you are aware of these things. I mean, I, the, the Agrippa paper, if I recall correctly, approvingly cites like Francis Bacon as the originator, mm-hmm. originator of the scientific method. So, this is someone who is writing about the process by which, you know, the medieval period is forgotten, basically reassigned to this meaning or value of being like hopelessly backwards. And then You know, which paves the way for like Francis Bacon's like scientific method. And it's like, you know, Bacon was an idiot. I mean, like there's there's it's hard not to to think that if you're like at all familiar with how actual scientists proceed. And there were many like very strident criticisms against him, particularly from the continent. people who are much better informed about how experimental science works, you know, and and so you can be someone who's like highly aware of this stuff and still have these like inherited narratives about this, like, you know.
0: By the end, Zahora also criticizes the guy that writes Swerve, which is a smash bestseller about how actually the Epicureans were right all along. Lucretius was right. The world is just a swerve of atoms, et cetera, et cetera and the Middle Ages were backward forever, considering that that might not be the case. When, in fact, the scholarship that went into that book about the Middle Ages, as it often is, is incredibly shallow and reliant on the propaganda of the Enlightenment itself. You know, Mike and I took a look at an article from Scientific American, and if people are interested in us pursuing these sort of thoughts about ancient sciences. I think Mike and I would be happy to do an episode on Plutarch's Archimedes chapter and this yeah. thing they've just discovered that it looks like Archimedes designed, but implies, in I guess uh, retort to the author of the piece in Scientific American on this astronomical device, that there was indeed an engineering and buildings and trades industry that had highly competent workers that could create such a sophisticated fine-tuned device, for measuring the spheres,
1: yeah, I, I we've we've mentioned this before—the anti-Kitera mechanism, which you know, the Scientific American article does a good job of explaining the sense in which its gear train is really substantially more complicated than you might imagine, and you know, knowing a little bit about gear cutting and putting together gear trains. Very rarely do you build one correctly the first time, particularly one that, that complicated. Yeah, right? that's sophisticated. So, yeah. yeah, first
0: of a kind is usually last of a kind because you it, learn how to do it differently immediately yeah, afterwards.
1: Yeah, for sure. So so someone got good at cutting complicated gears very careful and regular ways, which you can do with hand tools. I mean, there's, there's ways to do that. Sure. But it probably wasn't Archimedes, right? <laughs> like Archimedes had other fish to fry. He probably didn't spend, you know, like years and years getting really good at... At, at perfectly cutting gears. Right. I would There's think. a
0: division of labor that likely happened here.
1: Maybe. I mean, yeah. we, we should, I, I think I, maybe I should reserve judgment until we read his his biographical entry there. But yeah.
0: Yeah. There is a, by, by the way, I found it, I didn't pick it up, a recent biography within the last 10 years about Archimedes called Eureka Man which does a deep dive into all of this stuff. It's about 200 pages. It might be out of print by now, but I'm sure you could pick it up for cheap on Amazon in case anybody's curious about this. I've also picked up some recent books on what the engineering advancements of the middle ages actually were. So hopefully we can bring more of that content in. But this is all to say that when we're taking a look at what happens with modernity, I think we should have some serious questions about what is novel and what is just merely said to be novel. And that is the thing that I really struggle with when taking a look at this. I don't, obviously, we haven't fully understood what it means or what it has done, but it is increasingly hard the more I learn about it to discern, aside from things like Maxwell, Faraday, (laughs) you know, these material achievements, what is noticeably different about. What happens when we enter modernity? Obviously, there's a geographic element to it. There is an informational aspect to it. But how that shaped in actuality is harder to obtain. And that's what I felt while reading these pieces.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think there's a, for people who are interested in this kind of thing, I think there's an interesting esoteric aspect to this as well. Because, you know, Agrippa ends up. Approving basically only of a, a small number of arts, which include like cooking, you know, agriculture, yeah, and then like it basically like hedge wizard magic, like just <laughs> you know like just like minor incantations, the kind of stuff that you do in your garden, like yeah, whatever.
0: yeah, exactly. Um,
1: he, you know, so it's it's interesting to see that he does carve out some of this like uh, esoteric um practice as well, and I, I think in in some cases. You know, that's that's one of the most effective kinds of propaganda that's offered about the the modern period is the idea that, you know, scientific practice and the, exper- the experimental sciences and many engineering practices, which are basically all about like kind of iteratively bringing yourself into contact with some system until you kind of get the hang of it and know how to predict and control it to some extent, you know, that those are like categorically different from some of these, e- even just like folk folk ways like folk Mm -hmm. knowledges that people have you know and i i I don't think that's as clear as it's made out and you know possibly this is something for another another episode but like there's some work being done in in kind of like what's being called cultural evolution which i'm a little bit leery of but which points out you know that like folk ways can embed like really sophisticated causal knowledge without those people having like a properly scientific causal explanation for what they're doing. Um, that's sort
0: of uh, what Taleb's Lindy point about focus yeah. as well, right? I mean, I think that gets a little bit like, uh, even in his ways, he's a smart guy, I've learned a lot from him, but even that can be a little bit intellectual yet idiot for me in terms of how that's deployed.
1: Yeah, for sure. You know, and I, I think you have to be really careful and specific about what you're talking about when you're getting into that kind of stuff. But For
0: sure, because otherwise you're just engaging in the like uh, historical fallacy. Where it's like yeah. it's been around for a long time. So that means it's right because it's yeah. managed to be around for a long time. Yeah. It's like, there, yeah, that's not really what we're talking about here.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. And and there clearly are differences with the the kind of underlying thermoeconomic structure that provides, you know, modern science with so much of its real power, right? And, you can't
0: deny that. Like if you yeah. read Richard Rose's Energy Human History, which I recommend to everybody, because it's a great work of public history about thermoeconomic achievement from the transition to, from wood to coal in England, you really appreciate both how different the practice of the engineering disciplines is from perhaps Baconian science, and but also just how staggering and innovative and thoughtful a lot of this work was, and how much other work it made it possible to do. And that seems yeah. unique.
1: Yeah. And I, I mean, I would go so far as to say that, you know, if you look at like hedge wizardry, you know, just kind of like practically oriented esoteric practice that if you put oil behind that it can go a long way right yeah. you know like some, someone who kind of knows their way around their backyard and suddenly has like a lot of tools and energy to spend can do a lot of stuff with systems that might seem to us to be absurd or mm-hmm. you know the iterative application of that system brings it closer to something that would be recognized as modern science with that power behind it so yeah i don't know
0: exactly Now, while I was reading these pieces, I was thinking about the show. I was thinking about online life. And so that, of course, brought me to texting Default Friend about living online. Because Zahora brings up the claim, and I brought this up earlier in the essay without, I think, attributing it to him, what displacement did to bodies of knowledge and ways of being within locales. Right. Now, I was immediately thinking about how these mnemonic tools function as a mode of being, right? Like ontologically how they work. And then I started thinking about the way certain digital platforms work. And when one of those platforms dies and you have to adopt a new one to continue whatever community you're in, or because you want to move to a different community, how different that experience is and how there are certain mnemonic things built into the user interface that pattern, how you remember and how you think about things. People who are my age and a little older, who've lived through different iterations of what has ended up being called social media, probably have a sense of what I'm talking about. If you go from, I mean, think about in your mind's eye, how many visualizations of different forum pages you can go through in your head, things that no longer (laughs) exist anymore.
1: I, I don't want to do that.
0: Right. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe you don't want to do that. I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about also things like LiveJournal. I'm thinking about Gaia online, all of these things that had their own social dynamic and how they're dead or don't work anymore, or people have moved on from them and how that functions. And I couldn't help but think about a sort of ongoing sense of displacement as we see platform death and things like that. The impact that has on memory. I think about this a lot. I think about it in terms of the abandoned in my head, <laughs> Yeah, you know, the amount of social digital social spaces that I have spent time in and can have tears in the rain type fragmentary memories of that will in 10 years, not be able to communicate with, but a small number of people who might remember a similar thing but all that's just going to be locked inside me like so many broken trinkets. And how do you, yeah. And you got to forget it. You got to move on, you know, but what does that mean now without perhaps tools of forgetting other than the system error that happens with just the natural passage of time? The other thing to think about is like, if we're talking about online life, it all, obviously we're talking about like things like porn and all the other horrible shit you see on the internet. Yeah. How do you discipline your mind to forget these things? Like these are important tools for guide, guarding one's mind against corruption.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you, yeah, you just don't have enough life to, you know, be constantly reminded of that horrible stuff that you can find, and that you may may be motivated to find in some way or another. You know, I think there are, there are interesting connections. there. I mean, like lots of people have pointed out. You know the connections between computer and internet use and dissociation, which is is definitely like a memory and place phenomenon, right? Like a lacking, lacking memory of a period where you didn't really, you weren't really in any place, right? Like you may have yeah. done all kinds of things, but you weren't there. Yeah. As well as, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit leery about this, but I, I've seen some people, you know, mention it, that like, you know, Alzheimer's disease, the incident seems to be more associated with people in, Cities or who may have gone through more, you know, place transitions in their in their life, and that it seems to be at least less severe among people who are kind of like well rooted in a local rural community or something like that, where there's a place they go every day and have the same conversation every day, et cetera. Right. You know, but there's there's definitely a lot of like if you're a hard nosed biological materialist, there's a lot of you know biological phenomena happening to us on that level of memory and not having access to some of these traditional methods of memorization and of, you know, recalibration, forgetting, you know, dynamism, whatever you want to call it, is is a big deficit for us.
0: Right. I was thinking about, you're like, why aren't we using the term destabilization thing to talk about that? Because that seems to be a thing that feels very, very new. It's not that societies have never been unstable before certainly many of them have changed and stuff like that but we might call like the entrenchment of destabilization
1: yeah where it's just expected like yeah nobody remembers anything that happened six months ago right like it's just yeah. it's just all you're in the state of destabilization never nothing is ever concretized and is ever fully committed to memory you just have these kinds of impressions you know and uh, you know like yeah you, you may not remember entire years of your life like i remember i don't you know there are entire years of my 20s just gone <laughs> yeah like, so, you know that, that, what a waste you know like i really don't know what i was up to but probably nothing good um
0: <laughs> yeah if you're in your 20s you know, probably you may not want to remember anything
1: yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah maybe, maybe that's part of the art of, yeah like i i and and maybe you know, that's, that's part of it, right? Is that this is functional for us on some level that like, yeah, maybe we don't want to remember what we're actually up to all the time or what have you, because it's deeply painful. And, and, you know, establishing roots in some kind of memory structure would mean a whole bunch of painful recognitions of like, what could have been built in the time that was spent dissociated or whatever.
0: Yeah, exactly. How much time was spent in inattention you know, and in mindlessness and, and in all of these things, right? Like, I, when I think about this, I think about how, especially after 2016, everybody was talking about misinformation. Yeah. Oh, it's misinformation. misinformation." Whatever we think about that, there's a truth there that no one who makes that claim is willing to contend with. And this is perhaps something that we see an antecedent of in the subversive attempt of Agrippa and Erasmus, who's also discussed in the Zohora paper, which is the loss of hierarchies. And I don't mean this in a reactionary sense, like return to monarchy type of thing. What I mean is we have lost assumptions about what information is important and what isn't, what should be forgotten or what should be denied within the mind and what should be retained. And that's also not to say that we have fallen from a golden past. I am only pointing out that within the world of contemplating and internalizing the mnemonic cherub structure, there are those assumptions. We don't have to agree with them. We can only point out, that we, but we can point out that they, they're there, they order life, and they have a certain impact.
1: So I I think one of the the ways that I think about this is something that Sherman Jackson said about tradition where, you know, basically how he defined it was the things that people choose to take forward from the past because they continue to find them useful in some way or another. And, you know, Agrippa's attack is so radical that there's really almost nothing left right, to take yeah. forward so that, you know, the the utility of the cherub image is the allowance for dynamism, right? Like certain audiences might need to hear certain messages or certain practitioners of the Christian faith might need to meditate more heavily on particular topics. You know, you need to customize a reflection or a sermon or whatever to the particular context. And, you know, I think that's, that's also true of tradition from a generational perspective, right? Like we're constantly needing to revise and update and reconfigure and, you know, to do what Erasmus doesn't want to do because he, he sees it as being characteristic of the scholastic method, which is seek reconciliation between mm-hmm. apparently disparate contradictory authorities. Right. And, you know, it, ultimately you may have to abandon some of those authorities. But the more mm-hmm. of them that you do abandon, I think the more risk there is of ending up in a situation where you don't have enough traditional weight to resist like, you know, like your elite, your local elites class interests who yeah. just want to sweep all of that before market interest.
0: We have the problem with the vacuum is what I see here and what replaces this order and whether Humpty Dumpty can be put back together or whether that's even the task after he's broken. Yeah. I think is the is is a question to ask here. You know, when I read things like this, when I consider the subversive element here, you really start it really starts to dawn on you just how powerful a figure Nietzsche is. Yeah. Like just how incredibly sensitive and insightful he was to what he was seeing around him. Disquieting is how I would describe my response to (laughs) reading some of this stuff. You know, I don't fully understand like what we're supposed to do and I'm not alone in that. But what I understand is that I think I need to be contemplating what has happened before far more than I have been over the course of my life.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, and I think it's, you know, reading this kind of stuff is a useful reminder that there are aspects of, you know, particularly practices, mental practices of the the past that are well worth taking up again, as well as just, you know, a reminder that, you know, this kind of complete clearing of the table, except for your favored canon, Mm-hmm. Is, is often not the way to go, right? And, no.
0: um, and you, surpri- Surprising results.
1: <laughs> it, yeah. <laughs> surprising results often ensue. So, you know, it's, it's worth considering some of the things in the culture that you might not like to deal with, but that might nonetheless maybe enhance the appeal of your thinking or um, allow you to talk to other people. Uh, that you serve might not something beyond talk your to. preferences. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you
0: know, like yeah. that's the that's the major thing. Like I have no doubt that it was a very constrained corrupt world that Agrippa was dealing with. I don't need to quibble with him about that. I can fully believe that he had at least an appreciably accurate assessment of what he was seeing every day. And I share the bomb thrower's tendency to want to just Convey and assault the entire edifice. But this is where moderation and prudence really come in as virtues. You know, it's not yeah. just because patience is good. It's not just because you might make a decision that you regret per acting on rashness uh, or hubris. That's certainly something to guard against, but it's also so that you may better understand things the way they are beyond your preferences that you have the durability to hold on to that you know for example we might have some sustained critiques of the way that capital works and the way that private property works i have uncomfortability with all of that certainly I'm not convinced that absolutely destroying the idea of private property tomorrow is the way to go about it. When I take a look at who would take advantage of that vacuum.
1: Right. Yeah. There there's, yeah, there's ways to do things and, you know, yeah. Rushing it can have, have adverse consequences. You know, I mean, yeah, I, I think I, 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 Similarly, I, I empathize with the the Wahhabi or like Salafi tendency. Like, honestly, I do. Yeah. I mean, when it's just kind of like, we need to get back to basics. And like, you know, like when you're looking at Agrippa, it, it, you know, if as a religious person, it's, it's like very easy to say like, okay, like he's, he's still got the priorities, right? Like he still yeah. understands that like basically what matters is people's relationship to God and their ethical behavior and the necessaries of life which maintain the conditions under which any of that is possible right and I mean things are just way more complicated now right like the necessaries Mm -hmm. of life for many many people maybe even a majority of people now go well beyond you know agriculture and cooking and head wizardry right like we we have other kinds of things going on here that require very careful attention before you can even decide okay how do we operate on this patient what needs to be cut away and i I think like if you are in this state where it's like you well you've gone beyond agrippa you're you know fully modern and you have no more and no way to prioritize you know this or that you know you've gone full Foucault order of knowledge, like you just, you know, you're, you're kind of like lost or destabilized or like you like being lost and destabilized. Maybe you think it's like good then I, yeah, I think it's going to be very difficult to make those cuts in a, in a way that reliably produces good outcomes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's worth remembering here that the cherub is about moral contemplation. It's about religious and moral contemplation. That this was not an add-on to the world, but something that was endemic to it that people needed to internalize and think about, which is no guarantee that everyone was a perfect participant in that. What I would like to say is that not having it at all might not be an improvement from that imperfection. Whatsoever.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and 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 that's simultaneously not a call to return to corrupt authority, right? Like authority is not intrinsically good, right? And Agrippa is, you know, certainly right that if you you know get your head stuck up in your butt in one of these academic, you know, kinds of logical systems that ultimately you know either just enables your sort of narrative exploitation by elite interest or, you know, just traps you in some kind of thing that nobody ever, like, nobody ever reads, nobody's interested in it, then yeah, like, there's no point in in returning to that kind of authority. Like, we de- mm-hmm. we don't need that, you know, at the same time, like, I think connecting yourself to Tradition can provide an autonomous source of authority that relies much less on worldly power and on money and on these kinds of things and can provide some level of institutional and cultural leverage that's necessary for any social movement really to have an effect in a situation where, like, really the worldly power is completely sequestered by a a tiny minority and, like, it's very difficult for your decisions to, to make any difference at all as an individual, right?
0: Yes. Yeah, exactly. You know, like that's, that's what I was taking away from this is that we live so far downstream from this. We live, we live in such a beguiling world. I don't think by the way, that the middle ages were a simpler time. I don't think that's true. Not at all. I think that there were many things to think about many things to worry about much to engage with but things are certainly faster now and there yeah. are more of them and that's what our thermo economic ability has given us
1: Yeah yeah and produce that that kind of leveling right we we mm-hmm. trade I mean, it's interesting, like, it, regarding complexity, it's interesting to look at the, like, travelers accounts in the Middle Ages, whether, you know, European or, or mm. Arab or otherwise, because they were dealing with just, like, absolutely batshit changes from, like, tribe to tribe going, like, you know, 300 miles and, like, really having to stretch themselves personally to kind of, like, get along with these people who are doing yeah. things that are, like, totally outside of their their comfort zone, right? Stuff um, they never
0: even heard of or thought was possible because it's not like they got the paper on the yeah. door.
1: Right, and, and what building roads and burning fuel does is just obliterate the differences of distance, right? But, you know, it, what it doesn't do is eliminate complexity. And in, in you know, many cases, it, it adds it as it reduces maybe like cultural complexity, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah. I just kept thinking about what... I kept thinking about what the early church fathers meant when they talked about guarding your mind. yeah. And I think after reading this, I have a deeper appreciation of what might have been meant by that. Even if they were pre-scholastic, obviously there's something there about the contemplation of icons, about semiotic associations that internally move you beyond your passions towards something else that is that sort of guardianship of the mind and of the soul.
1: Yeah. uh, And I think Agrippa is worth looking at here as like a psychological operator. Yes, and a lot of the classical arts, including some of the magical arts, can be subsumed under psycholo- or understanding of psychological operations mm-hmm. in in the modern. And yeah, like there's no escaping this stuff, right? Like if you're not operating on yourself, someone else is operating on you. So you know, and it might be Agrippa, right? Like depending <laughs> on your your yeah. kind of predictions. Yeah. So I think that's that's certainly. Uh, well worth keeping in in the forefront of your mind, particularly if you spend any time on the internet, right? Like, yeah, you do need to protect your mind. You know, there's in in, I'm sure this is true of the Christian faith. It's certainly true in. Uh, Islam, there's an entire tradition about control of the eyes, right? And like the position of the eyes, like don't look at stuff that's going to, you know, either waste your time or lead you into sin or give you impulses you don't want to have or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. And the same goes for your ears. The same goes for controlling the tongue. Right. And we very rarely hear anything about this, you know, these days. I mean, uh, there's all of these really like internal arts, like personal arts of which, you know, Agrippa benefited from. Right. Like he Mm -hmm. was familiar with many of them. So he didn't know what it would be like to be someone who didn't have access to any of them and just to be this kind of like bestial creature inside and have to assimilate that all like, oh, like I want to do this. Oh, well, that must be me that's my identity now. And like, I'm going to go do it. And like, you know, it's, it's, it's wild that, you know, like, I think if you could explain to him, look, you know, like this is, what this is what, be these like. are the stakes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man, These like, are the stakes. You know, he, he, he might've just been like, okay, like, I'll, I'll take it yeah. easy.
0: Or maybe not. That might've been too fantastical. He'd be like, there's uh, yeah. no way. There's no way. There's yeah, no yeah. way.
1: Yeah, God that would probably would have been that, my like, response. Like, yeah.
0: yeah. There, <laughs> there's no way that's possible because yeah. how could you ever, conceive that. Like you might even think, okay, the faith that I know will be washed away and it will be replaced with this other faith. I would believe that before what the modern experience is.
1: Yeah, that's fair enough. You know, like I
0: think, I think that that's, that's like the training of the eyes. This is stuff that I'm thinking more and more about because So much is a psychological advice that we get is about becoming more efficient and more disciplined. In other words, it's about working because our society is about doing work. Yeah. I'm not going to devalue doing work. Being able to work is very, very important. And I think an essential part of being human, but that is, but one thing we might want to consider.
1: Yeah, the the corporate yoga stuff is about working hard and not working smart, right? Like yes. you need to be <laughs> it's psychologically... about working for somebody
0: else a lot yeah. of the time too,
1: right? Right. And like most people want to work smart, not hard. Right. So Mm -hmm. like you need to be psychologically healthy in order to do that. Like, you know, in the literal sense, like psyche, your soul must be well ordered in order to work smart, not hard. Like, you know, anyone can be psyoped into showing up to, you know, a warehouse or a cubicle and you may be in the, you know, I don't mean to demean that in any way. Like you may be in the circumstances where you have to do that, but there's, that's, that's not the discipline that we're talking about. Like there's a, a different kind of discipline.
0: Yeah, exactly. The training of the eye is so hard when we think about life today with iPhones and stuff like that. Yeah. It's a very much a lost art. Maybe it's something that we should take a look at because the way attention and memory work now, I don't want to say they're different, like our brains are actually different, but the emphasis has so radically shifted from retention to stimuli that it's worth revisiting what that art might be. It is likely preventative care before you have to enter into the art of forgetting.
1: Yeah. It's a constant battle. And I mean, like, you know, there's, there's entire weaponized industries out there that are designed to exploit you in this way. Right? Like that's what advertising is. Like advertising requires you to not have good discipline over your gaze. I mean, because, I live.
0: I live in Los Angeles. Like, yeah,
1: I you know it.
0: That is 100 percent true. We spent the holidays out in New Mexico, where there aren't a lot of billboards because there just aren't a lot of people. So why would you buy one? Why would you put one there? Right. Except on some of the major highways and some municipalities are like you can't put these here because they have a tourism economy. So you know,
1: right? <laughs> they <laughs> want <to just laughs> a bunch of stuff messing that up. Yeah, There's another know. monetary interest there.
0: Right, right, right. But it has the side benefit of that you don't have to see any of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what you pay attention to, what you care about can change. It was like that when I lived in Vermont. And then I would just drive over the border into New York state and see like the first billboard and i would be like, oh my God, I forgot about these.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, you know, not, not to glorify, you know, mental illness and depression, but like, you know, one of the, the sort of side benefits of having been a depressed neat or whatever is that mm-hmm. you may have actually like lots of opportunities to practice this kind of thing. And like being alone, being quiet, being okay with your thoughts, mm-hmm. controlling what you're looking at, controlling what you're doing, you know, this kind of stuff. It's a lot easier to, to practice when there are not like active intrusions, right? Like being, being outside is... I mean, it sounds crazy to say this, but like being outside is exposing yourself to psychological assault sometimes yeah. in different kinds of ways, you know, and sometimes it depends on the season and other things, but you know, it's, it's, it is a battleground and don't, don't delude yourself and think that it's not right. Like it's, it requires training.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Like anything. Yeah. And I can't claim to be anywhere near adept. You know, I wish I was, I think that that's what I yeah. realize now. You know. The other thing I realized is that and I'll just I'll just say this, that the intellectual discipline of being able to retain and rebuff arguments is also very, very just intellectually important. And I'm sure people who have expertise are used to that. You have your like Rosary, for lack of a better term, of like rebuttals or whatever, certainly as a nuclear advocate, I have to engage in a lot of that and discipline my mind in retaining certain things I yeah. fucking don't care about, frankly, so that I can do that. I was very, very impressed with the cherub device and some of the other things discussed, even if I couldn't take their use into what I do. I, I admired it. So... On that note, guys, I hope this one wasn't too weird. I hope it was helpful. Let us know if you are interested in sort of the Archimedes thing. I think Mike and I would be very interested in tackling that. It could be great fun. And as always, if you can, leave a review. Thanks for everybody that has done that. Leave a rating, whatever. Join the Patreon if you'd like. If you don't, that's fine too. We'd love to have you there. We do interesting stuff there too. And stay safe out there. We'll talk to you next time.
1: Take care, guys.